TFM. Welcome, boomers, to another episode of Warp 5, our dedicated Star Trek Enterprise podcast. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me, as he always is, is my Steam co-host, Matthew Rushing. And Matthew, you're going to be really excited about today because I've asked Chef to cook us up some snake meat. Um. Okay, Chris. Um. <laughs> I mean, I, uh, is there a specific reason? Or are you just uh, missing the days when we had survival training? Or Well, I just thought, you know, of all the possible things that we might eat as we head down to visit Sabral's home, you know, snake meat might not be the worst option. Uh, I mean, it might not be the worst, <laughs> but would we say it's like necessary? <laughs> well, we'll find out. We'll find out as we talk about today's episode. As we continue our 20th anniversary rewatch of Enterprise and the episode is Desert Crossing and Trip, he doesn't want to eat any snake meat. And if you need a refresher on the episode, here's a quick rundown. After their encounter with Vulcan Ambassador Valar, the crew of the NX-01 are back on course for Ryza. But they'll have to wait a bit longer for rest and relaxation by the pool thanks to a distress call. They assist the pilot of a small craft and then accept his invitation to visit his home in the desert. But what at first appears to be just an invitation to dinner, which, as I said, Trip hopes will be free of snake meat, it turns out to be a plea for assistance in a fight against the government. So, Matthew, there's a, a lot of things going on in this episode, both fun and serious in terms of the commentary. And I thought we could just start with the setting, which makes me think, let's play some sand polo, because <laughs> we have that opening uh, scene there where we see Archer's bag and it's got the, the patch on mm-hmm. it for the, the water polo championships. And this game that they play called Gascana, it's more like lacrosse than water Mm -hmm. polo on sand, but it got Archer's competitive spirit blazing for sure. And Zabral really knew just how to pull him in, I think. Yeah. I mean, the idea of kind of like creating a, a game like this was, I think, fun for the episode. And I think I was right in the same position with you in the sense that this felt very much like a a sand lacrosse game, Mm -hmm. which was kind of an interesting idea. Just the way they played it had, you know, kind of a sci-fi element with the the energy ball they're playing Mm -hmm. with uh, and all. And so, I mean, you know, the setting here I thought was fascinating because, you know, Enterprise and most Star Trek shows really aren't on location very much. Right. And so to actually go out into the desert for a lot of this episode, one, had to be exhausting for the crew and, you know, for the guys. Um, You know, I I just can't imagine there's that mention of like losing a few kilos by the end of their survival training on Australia. Mm -hmm. And I'm feeling like uh, that uh, Bacula and Trenere, I'm I'm sure, probably lost a few kilos out there as well uh, because just running around in the the sun. I I was wondering, like, uh, do they have, like, automatic Starfleet sunscreen at this point? (laughs) 
They might. Seems <laughs> like that was a bad idea to go running around in the sun on an alien planet. You don't know what the UV rays are like. Uh, did they? I'm surprised they didn't come back sunburned. See, that would have been great if they came back sunburned and then they had to be in the decon chamber for a day applying ointment or something like that. <laughs> that makes for a really boring episode, you know, like that. That's the whole episode. They just, there isn't any of this other stuff. They just come back burned and they're spending all their time. Well, you know, if this episode were made today, it would air. And then by that evening, next day for sure, you would be able to go to the Star Trek.com store, online store, and purchase the sunscreen that was used in the episode because. Probably these the days, case, yes. They're all about creating things for the episodes yes. and then selling them. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Um, again, I, I think the setting is is actually something that really works for the episode because, regardless of like if if how you feel about an episode, it's always nice to have just a completely different setting that's outside right. of the mm-hmm. sound stages, that's outside of the ship, because really, I think. In a lot of ways, this becomes an episode as much about all of the Star Trekky prime directive type elements that we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. You know, this is an episode that's about two friends, right? And yeah. their will to survive in a really terrible predicament that they find themselves in, one that they had no plans for. So, you know, I think to me, that's the thing that really. I enjoy about the episode is that this setting allows us to have a very specific Tucker and Archer story to kind of continue to build that friendship and what makes it so special. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great point. And especially near the end of the episode when Archer has to keep Trip alive, keep him Mm -hmm. awake. Yes. That really comes through. And what comes through is the the long friendship that they've had, the things that they've been through together mm-hmm. to get to this point, because I, I'm not sure that Archer would have succeeded had that been a random officer, not someone that he had that connection with already. And, yeah, and likewise true. for Trip too. You know, I think Trip was maybe uh, holding on a bit more because it was Archer that was trying to keep mm-hmm. him awake than you know, mm-hmm. random fellow crewmate. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. Um, you know, and I, I, it is interesting because I think, you know, the setting itself also kind of plays into um, some aspects of our world, but more than anything, you know, I, I know there's probably like Middle East connotations, um, you know, uh, possibly even, um I mean, I don't know if this is the case, but they they could be trying to reference, you know, things in the Holy Land. I'm I'm not sure. But what I think it does is it just, it puts you in a place that immediately like strips you of everything, Mm -hmm. you know, so we're putting the characters in real danger very quickly. And I think that's the thing that also makes the setting really successful and, and really smart choice for the story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it seemed like in this episode, maybe there is a bit of effort being made to shift the US-centric nature of Star Trek a little bit. 
the setting here, the conversation that Hoshi has with Topol. I, th- I found that conversation interesting. And maybe we'll talk about it more specifically in a little bit when we talk about the prime directive elements. But mm-hmm. just the fact that she asked, out of all the places on earth that you could land, why did right. you land in Montana? And as someone who lives outside the US and is very aware of the US-centric nature of entertainment writing in general, not just of mm-hmm. Star Trek. But I also understand Star Trek's created by Americans, so naturally it's going to be US-centric. Yeah. So I don't have a problem with it, but I'm aware of it. And so seeing Hoshi say that, mm-hmm. for me, the reading is a bit like, why Montana? Why the US of all the places? Of course, that wasn't primarily her point, but I love that Topol's answer remains in universe and she explains well you know it's where they built the the warp drive so of course we're going to go there right well and i think that it really does kind of help you understand like what if if things had turned out differently which mm-hmm. you know obviously they go into that with the mere darkly you know episodes uh you know things could have gone very differently but i think that's a an interesting question though in in the sense of what the Vulcans did seems to be against their character in some ways. You know, yeah. like Earth had just gotten out of a, a, a war and, and tension still could have been kind of high at this time. And so it does bring into question why they would have done it. And maybe they do it for, you know, I mean, for Vulcan altruistic reasons, that that's even possible. Mm-hmm. So I, that was something where I was like, I kind of want that explored more as you know, it'd be really actually, I think, an interesting book series actually to have written from the Vulcan point of view why they come to Earth. Mm-hmm. Because I think that is a fascinating question. And then, of course, it actually applies to what we get in the episode where we see Archer being caught in the middle completely, I mean, not on purpose. Like, th- this is an accident. You know, this has nothing to do with him. This is not really necessarily his fault to get caught in something and be blamed for something that he hasn't actually done. Right, right. Yeah, it's sort of an accident, as we'll talk about. Zabral also sought him out. But I will just note from what you just said, you don't really understand the story of First Contact until you've read it in the original Vulcan (laughs) <laughs> i'm sure that's the case actually so <laughs> uh, last point before we move away from the scenery here did you like me have this moment where trip and archer are crossing the top of one of these giant sand dunes did you want them to run into r2d2 and c3po up there because i felt like they were on tatooine at one point in this episode yeah, it was either Tatooine or I was worried they were going to run into a sandworm. So, you know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like it was either one, right. that or a crate dragon. Who knows what they're going to. But yeah, yeah. I, I mean, apparently they hadn't watched a lot of like desert sci-fi because deserts are not place to walk around in, in sci-fi movies. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, apparently they had not watched much on movie night. But the writers obviously have because we've got all kinds of Dune, Star Wars, and who knows what else tropes yes. yep. <laughs> in this episode with the desert scenery. But it's fine, like you said, to get uh, on location somewhere for something like this. 
All right. Well, let's talk about Archer's reputation, because you mentioned that it was an accident that he's in this situation, but it's not purely an accident because Zabral had heard from some Sulabine about the events that we saw in the episode Detained, where Archer helped the prisoners being held at Detention Complex 26, which was run by the Tandarans. He helped them escape. And Zabral thought that he would be this great hero to come join this this struggle against what Zabral sees as an oppressive government. Yeah, I thought that this was fascinating because one, it shows, you know, the unintended consequences that happen from any action, right? Archer makes this choice with the Tandarans and with the Sulaban, and it leads to this completely unintended consequence with a completely different race, right, that has heard about what he did. And what he's heard is a incredible embellishment of the truth, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And it's made him out to be somebody that he's not. He, it's basically turned him into this glorified military savior, right? This, right, yeah. This military messiah. Yeah. And that's not what he is at all, right? And the story, of course, of what happened there is so much smaller than the story that gets told here to Zabral in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so I think that is really, really interesting how all this ends up working out for them and how it happens in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, it's it's good because it's another place where Enterprise is, is taking a cue, I think, in many ways from Deep Space Nine in the sense of like connecting the stories – Without it being so serialized that you can kind of get stuck, but enough that it's rewarding you for having watched the show repeatedly. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, it's nice here because we do have that Sulabine thread that's starting to run through. We've talked before mm-hmm. about how the temporal Cold War and the Sulabine elements are interesting, but they're not visited enough to make them really work. But here late in season one, we do start to get a bit more connection with Detained than here. And then we're going to have it coming up again in the next episode. And so they're starting to build it up. And I think the way that they do it was kind of clever here. It reminds me, it's not exactly the same thing, but it reminds me a little bit how in season two of Deep Space Nine, we start hearing about the Dominion here and there just Mm -hmm. a little bit. And here yes. we're, we're getting Sulaban mentions just a little bit. Yep. That's really good call. Yeah. yeah. The thing about Archer, though, so the story that Zabral heard was certainly embellished and it built up this image of Archer as being, you know, a tactical genius and some kind of a powerful figure that would help them overwhelm mm-hmm. the government. But uh, that wasn't true. But The other thing that he tells Archer, I thought, was interesting and maybe true to Archer's character. He said, you have an arsenal of powerful weapons, but more importantly, I need your wisdom. Our current strategy isn't working, but I am confident that together we can find one that does. I would be honored to fight alongside you, as would all of my men. So the mention of Archer's wisdom, however, I I thought was an accurate view that Zabral has of Mm-hmm. Archer, yeah, in that not the tactical aspects of it, but maybe the 
desire to help others and to find a solution to the problem. Although I don't know that breaking prisoners out of a detention complex is actually the best solution for everyone involved. But I can see from Archer's perspective why it was Mm -hmm. the option that he chose. And so in this situation, maybe Archer would uh, find it he would have a desire to help Zabral find a solution. He even says that at the end of the episode when he tells to Paul yep. that he thinks that Zabral's cause was worth fighting for. Well, and I think one of the things here is that we see from his experience in Detained that he's learned. And maybe now he would actually make a different choice because that's the reason he's also making the different choice here. Like he's learned it's not his place mm-hmm. to get involved yeah, in right. the wars of others. Now, at that same time, and detained, he's also freeing himself, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's, there's, it's not quite all altruistic True. here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I, I think that plays into it. But I, I think he does, there, he has intense wisdom in the sense that he realized it is not his place as a starship captain to get involved in the disputes on another world that he doesn't necessarily have all the facts of. What he does have right now does seem to lead him to a place where if he only had the amount of information at this current time, he would make the decision to get involved. Mm -hmm. But I think he also knows that Maybe he doesn't have all of the information and therefore, you know, again, he doesn't have the time that his, his he's not out here to get embroiled in other people's wars. So I, I think at least on that front, the brawl is completely right mm-hmm. in that. Well, Archer does have a lot of wisdom yeah. and not only is it, does he have a lot of wisdom, but he's continuing to gain it by being able to adequately look back at the choices that he's made previously and learn from them and even be able to be self-critical and say, oh, maybe I'm, I did not make the right choice there. And so, you know, mm-hmm. it's. It's exactly what you would want from this series, right? You want your captain to be one who's not perfect at the beginning, who's really learning what it means to be a Starfleet captain and to take those lessons and continually learn from them and change the character as we go along. Yeah, yeah. And from Zabral's perspective, I wonder if he, if Archer told Zabral, okay, I think the best thing for Mm -hmm. you to do is to stop the fighting that you're doing talk to the government, here are some options that I would try from my position as a starship captain. I think you should do that. I wonder if Zabral would have followed that lead and benefited Mm -hmm. from the wisdom that Archer is gaining as his exploration of space goes on. That I don't know because one aspect of this episode that I think is a bit weak or it it could have been explored more and made the episode better is what is the real nature of the conflict in the first place? Because without that, sure. it's difficult for us to know what Archer should mm-hmm. do unless we're on the side of 
no, no, you should never, ever, ever get involved in right. the affairs right. of another culture. But that's not mm -hmm. where we are in enterprise at this point. We're still in the situation where the NX01 is getting involved. And so that aspect of the story, I think, maybe could have played out a bit more over the second half mm -hmm. of the episode. Yep. And it could have made the situation more interesting between Archer and Zabral, Zabral's struggle, the commentary that is obviously here about our own world and uh, government oppression and attacks. You know, I mean, you can see it's certainly at the time that this was written, probably more related to what was going on in the world following the 9-11 attacks. But if you look at the world today, what's happening with Russia and Ukraine, you can see how there can be conflicts that someone wants to pull other people into mm -hmm. and the other people are like, I'm not sure if we should get involved in this or not. So yeah. that's another timeless nature of the story. But yep. but that type of commentary, I think they could have dug into a little bit more and made the episode even better. Mm -hmm. And I also think that, you know, one of the things that kind of maybe sours Archer slightly here, even though he, he might be more on Sabral's side, possibly with all of mm -hmm. the information, is the fact that, you know, he's been brought here under false pretenses. Yeah, right. And I think that that makes him wary yeah. in in this situation in the first place, which, again, I think is is very wise as well. But, I mean, to truly understand on whether or not they would need to get involved would take an immense amount of time, right? And, and that, again, is not why they are out here. Right. And yep. so uh, I think we truly do see Archer having learned the lessons of the past and applying them here. And yeah, I, I think it's it, it, what you said. This is an episode to which there is continued relevance because we do continue to see these type of things happening. People mistreating others because of the way they look or whatever. Um, we do see, we do continue, Continue to see people starting wars for no good reason, and how do we deal with that? You know, the, none of these are easy questions, right? right? I mean, yeah. and and anybody who tells you that they're easy is trying to sell you something. So, mm -hmm. and I I just really appreciate about this about this episode, and Archer realizes I honestly don't have the time to 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 be in this planet for ages to try and figure this out. And right, it's not his in mission. In the end, too, right. in the end, too, this moves all the way back to Dear Doctor, right? Mm -hmm. Where he's going to let those people figure it out. Yeah. And and I, I think there's a wisdom in that, too. Like, I'm not here to play military god with people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As much as I'm not here to play god, you know, like, science-wise. Right, so. right. So in that sense, like Dear Doctor, this is another proto-prime directive story. And Archer, as we've talked about, he mm -hmm. notes himself that if I hadn't helped the Sulaban escape, we wouldn't be here right now. We wouldn't be in this situation right. because the brawl would not have sought us out and lured us here. Mm -hmm. Then there's the conversation between Hoshi and Tapal that I mentioned earlier. and. 
to Paul talks about how, you know, affairs like this should be left up to governments, not starship right. captains. Some other cultures have directives that govern how they deal with situations like this. And then she says that eventually Archer will have to create some directives of his own. So once again, we're they're not saying prime directive yet, but in the writing, they are slipping the word directive in, which while a generic word for Star Trek fans does immediately have that link to the prime directive. Right. And so we're just inching closer and closer to mm-hmm. this. Which I, I mean, I, I think I, I like obviously, and it makes sense that, that because this would be a massive question, right? You know, and DePaul is absolutely right. And, and I, again, I kind of bring back the discussion that her and Hoshi have you know, Hoshi is kind of asking, like, how how did you guys make that choice? Mm-hmm. Because Hoshi's realizing that that is something to which they are wrestling with here. And so for Archer and the crew of the Enterprise to have to work towards uh, uh, these types of discussions of what are we going to do, how are we going to do it, and when are we going to do it is really, really important. And so, um, you know, and I thought that that was nice, too, that this wasn't just a conversation that was happening between, you know, like Archer and Paul and Trip. Right. This is something that Hoshi, who deals with basically first contact mm-hmm. and meeting new races and because she's so involved in that, it makes sense that she would be very interested in this as well. So I thought that was a great character moment to give that to Hoshi because this is a big part of her job, which is getting to know people and helping with communication with them and how we communicate, where we communicate and what we communicate is all going to be very, very important. Yeah. Well, and I think it's important too, that we're seeing, as you said, it's not just Archer, Tripp and DePaul, but we're seeing the crew, more of the crew realizing this. So it's a gradual process mm-hmm. because right. for it to really take shape the Starfleet Federation, they the mindset has to shift to accept this is how mm-hmm. we should handle alien cultures. And, right. and I think in the case of Hoshi, because she deals with language, the thing about language, a lot of people think language is just the words are different or the sounds are different. And if you can just translate them, you know, word for word, you get the same meaning. But of course, language is very dependent on culture and beliefs and ethics and all kinds of things, but especially culture and the the way that you view the world itself can be influenced by the language you speak, the structure of the language, the way that uh, you express things comes from a somewhat different viewpoint, a view of the world. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's that nuance in language. And because she deals with language, I think she's a lot more familiar with how different cultures think, not only on Earth, but these alien cultures as well. And so it it is natural that she might be even more aware than others of the need to not just charge in and not just immediately get involved in something, but to consider uh, the other culture more carefully. So that is natural. I think that's a really great point, Chris. And I think 
when you were talking about the idea of understanding the nuance, you know, I, I think that's one of the things that possibly Archer does realize here is that to understand the nuance of what's happening and why it's happening on this planet is something to which obviously would take immense time. And he doesn't know yet, so he shouldn't take a side at this point. Right, right. And and so I really, I, in you know, obviously connecting that with what you're saying with Hoshi is, is really, really interesting too. So I think one of the things that this episode does, and it does really interestingly, and I, I do think, like you said, that could have been a little bit deeper. And the problem is, is that, you know, you've got, unless you're going to make this a two-parter, you've got 42 minutes to try and tell the story. Yeah. But kind of digging into some of that would have been really interesting in the episode because it is such an important subject for this crew and what they're doing. So, I, I mean, what I like, though, is that we're getting to have the discussion because of the episode. Mm-hmm. And I think whether or not the the episode itself is completely successful in in unpacking all of these ideas which it can't i think the cool thing is is it gives fans and people who are watching it the opportunity to be able to have these type of discussions and in the end i think that makes the episode successful yeah yeah you know i think the season four three episode arc structure would be good for a story like this because it would give you the Mm. time to explore the issues in more detail without dragging mm-hmm. it out as like a, a storyline that's going to run all the way through a season or multiple seasons or anything like that. Right. Now, of course, this particular situation, I don't know, would be that interesting to Star Trek fans overall as a three-parter mm-hmm. because it's not directly connected to the mythos, but at least if you wanted to tell a very meaningful story addressing intervention and consequences and early space exploration, that structure would work well with this particular story. No, I I 100% agree. And and in some ways, I think that's where, you know, as we're talking, I just covered the first book of the New Earth series Mm -hmm. on literary tracks. And that episode, I think, will probably be out by the time this one comes out. But Casey and I were talking about that. And that's one of those books where it kind of felt like this might have been better as a story in an, in its own universe. Mm-hmm. And I think you're kind of onto something. It's, it's almost like, yeah, to really explore the story more, you do kind of need it to be in its own universe as opposed to Star Trek because this, the way we tell Star Trek stories doesn't really lend itself to, to telling this story mm-hmm. fully yeah. in that manner. And so, yeah, I, I it's interesting you said that because it's funny because we just had that episode of Literary Treks and it's interesting when, you know, you do podcasts and things you were talking about in other podcasts actually right. like connect. So, yeah, yeah it's, that's pretty cool. One more question about this Prime Directive thing, proto-Prime Directive that's been evolving in season one. Do you feel like the pace of the development is appropriate for, not appropriate in real life, because of course it would take time, but for the series itself as a prequel, establishing things that we're familiar with in Star Trek, do you think that fans would 
have preferred to see them quickly get to the point of having a prime directive or have it portrayed in this way where encounter after encounter after encounter slowly pushes them towards the realization that they need to have some framework. I think this makes, I mean, at least for me personally, it just makes so much more sense to have it happen like this Mm -hmm. because, you know, if it happens right away, it just becomes the, the very thing that this show is trying not to do, which is to be the Star Trek that we all know. You know, this is more about getting to the Star Trek we know, and therefore it should be a journey. As they say, it's it, it's about the journey. Yeah, Life is about the journey. And, and I think this makes it much more exciting and much more interesting to watch how we get there. Mm-hmm. That's kind of one of the things that makes prequels worth telling. And so I think that they're doing it well here, that they continually kind of are building in the story these little reference points that are kind of continuing to build a wall as to why we will need this. And I just appreciate that it they're not trying to do it all at once. Yeah. Because if they were doing it all at once, you would just, I, I feel like as a fan, I would roll my eyes and be like, are you serious? Like we're we're like, are it, it would almost feel like jumping the directive. You know, <laughs> I don't know if that makes any sense. Since you're know, like jumping the shark, yeah, but yeah. No, it's, I, I'm you're jumping the storyline. I'm picturing giant letters that say directive, and then you know someone. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. It's really hard for Archer to get over the, those letters. The fines so. just jumping right over it, you know. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. It's a hundred percent what I was thinking. <laughs> I'm just vision in my mind. So, yeah, I was just asking because I could see where it's not instant, but you have like the Andorian incident, and then you have what happens in your Doctor, and maybe they just decide, you know, if we're going to be out here, we got to stop getting involved in stuff. So we're not going to do it anymore if we see something, if someone asks us, if we find ourselves in a situation, we're just going to say, nope, sorry, we can't get involved right. and go. You know, they could have done it that way, but instead it's it's more natural to me that, yeah, these things would keep happening and just bit by bit, they're realizing, you know, and now Hoshi's realizing and more people will, will realize and it just builds up to that. Well, and you do realize too that, I mean, this thing this one didn't happen on purpose. You know, they got a distress call and they stopped to help and it turned into something they didn't expect. Right. And mm-hmm. I, I think one of the things, and I want to ask you this question because the, what I got from the story was, is that the distress call was on purpose because yeah. they're looking for Archer. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and so they don't realize honestly that they've been set up. Yeah, exactly. From and so, from Archer's point of view, they just happen to get a distress call. But from Zabral's point of view, it's all staged because they were looking yes. for Archer because they heard about him. Yes. So that's why I say it, yes. it's not really an accident, but yeah, Archer feels like it is. It's only an accident on Archer's side. Yeah, it, right. It's not an accident. Yeah, from Zabral's side. Absolutely. Yeah, right. Let's talk about one more little point here, a Shades of Grey point. Like DS9, and the reason you and I love DS9 so much, this episode doesn't tell you what's right or what's wrong. It doesn't... It Zabral is accused of being a terrorist, but the episode itself 
doesn't tell you whether he is a terrorist, whether he's right in fighting, or whether he's wrong in fighting. And I thought back to past episodes where we've had similar situations. Of course, we have the whole Bajoran resistance in DS9 and the fact that Kira Mm -hmm. was a terrorist, essentially. But we've all had... From a certain point of view. Yeah, exactly. We've all had many discussions about whether she was or wasn't, and it definitely depends on your point of view and and where you are in the situation. And I think back to the next generation and the high ground where Beverly is kidnapped and then Picard is kidnapped, and then in the end, those people are portrayed clearly as terrorists and even taken into custody at the end. So the story is clearly telling you which side you should be on, but mm-hmm. that's not happening here. And in fact, Zabral helps them rescue Archer and Trip as well. And at the end, as I mentioned earlier, Archer tells to Paul that, you know, I kind of think he has a cause worth fighting for, which is, I think, not what we would have gotten in most earlier Star Trek, where someone was accused of being a terrorist. That would not have been the view of our hero looking at it. I absolutely agree with you. And I think one of the things of creating that ambiguity is really important. You know, when you think about um, specifically the stories um, like, and I really liked that you brought up, you know, what we see obviously in Deep Space Nine, because I think that that is, is really a key there. It is about your perspective and your point of view, and I think the only people that would call them terrorists are the Cardassians who had no reason to be on Bajor in the first place. And so they always say, you know, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter, and of course, you know, the American colonists were thought of as terrorists by the British. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's – again, it is all about perspective, and I think being able to understand that idea is – is really important and to be able to to look at those perspectives then and then it there is a part of that that comes down to a moral judgment as well and what i love about that is that it's not easy here and it, and and so archer is making a moral judgment at the end saying i feel as though morally he may be have a cause worth fighting for but Archer is not going to make that decision haphazardly and get his crew into a war that they shouldn't be involved in Mm -hmm. and realizes it's not his place really anyway to make that decision. It would be it would need to be his superiors in the government of Earth. And so I just again that it really just comes down to that wisdom that we see him have here. And yet the difficulty, too, of making that because as human beings. You know, when we see somebody being morally wronged, it is hard for us to not want to do something about it. And I think that's one of the places where, you know, in the world that we're living in exactly right now in this moment, it is very difficult. What do we do and how do we do it? And what it's well, you have to consider the consequences of it as well. Exactly. Exactly. And there's there's all of these consequences which we can figure out would be there. And then there would be all the unintended consequences mm-hmm. we're trying to figure out that might be there. So it's, again, 
It is not an easy question, and I think this episode, by not giving us a trite answer or an easy answer, is the much better solution to this type of story. Yeah. Now, Archer, luckily, has the ability to leave the situation and just remove himself from it, whereas in our own world, certainly what's happening today, we don't have that option. We can't simply walk away from it. But we do have to carefully consider what's the best course mm-hmm. of action, right? Exactly. As far as the Shades of Grey thing goes, in this episode, you know, me as the viewer, I still don't really have an opinion because I don't have enough information to know whether Zabral's doing the right thing or the wrong thing, whether he's a terrorist or not a terrorist. When we watch DS9, we have a lot of information so we can decide yes. how we view the Bajorans or how we view the Maquis. But here, yeah, I really don't know. And that's where, as I mentioned earlier, I think the story could be very interesting if they had mm-hmm. more time to really delve into what was truly mm-hmm. happening on the planet in between these people. Right. Well, and I, I think the fact that we as the viewer have the same amount of information as Archer mm-hmm. helps us realize, too, that Archer has made the right decision. Right. Yeah. Because he doesn't have enough information to be making that decision. Yeah. In the same way that he had so much more information, say, in, in like Dear Doctor, you know, mm-hmm. and, and regardless of whether or not I agree with his choice there or anything, it's, I think, here, I think he does make the right decision. Like, there's, to me, there's no question that he made the right decision. Yeah. I, I would say that I can speculate that he has a bit more information than we have because I'm sure he had conversations off screen, but... Yeah. He wasn't there long yeah, enough to, so. to, yep. to really understand the situation either way. Yeah, so right. essentially, yeah, we know about as much as he does probably. And yeah, I agree that in this case, not getting involved would be the best choice for Archer, for his crew, for Earth. Yeah. Well, as we get ready to wrap up here, I did want to mention just one nice little thing that happened here with a connection between the real world inspiration for the ship, the real world aircraft carrier enterprise. This was the first time that the three sailors of the year from the aircraft carrier enterprise visited the set of the TV show enterprise and actually got to be extras and they appeared as engineering officers. And then they did the same thing. Of course, three different officers the following year, the people who were named Sailors of the Year came back and appeared in first flight. So first and second season of Enterprise, I thought, did a nice little thing there, a nice little nod to the Navy and the inspiration for Star Trek. Yeah, that's fantastic. All right. Well, what are your final thoughts and what's your rating for this episode? And leading into that, I did want to mention that Talking to Star Trek Communicator Magazine, I don't know if you remember, but Rick Berman, he used to have those little interviews where he Mm -hmm. would update everybody on what they had been doing and what's coming up in the the days before everything was online the way it is now. Yeah. And uh, in the lead up to this episode airing, he told Communicator that this was, quote, undoubtedly one of the best episodes we've done. So what are your thoughts? Well, one, I do think a uh, great call uh, with uh, casting. 
Um, I think getting Clancy Brown to be in this episode was a phenomenal choice. Uh, he's always a good actor. And, and one of the things that I think they did really well was that he can be so incredibly likable and yet at the same time be incredibly dangerous feeling. And I think that's really good for this character. That's exactly what you want, where you're not quite sure whether or not you can believe the person or trust the person once their true colors are revealed. So I, I think in that sense, it really well done on their part to to cast him. And, and I think that's actually something that elevates the episode from maybe being something that you could just be like, oh, that was good. I think his performance really um, gives us something else to really gravitate towards here. I actually really enjoyed rewatching this episode, and I thought my estimation of the episode actually went up from the ways in which I think you brought to light how this episode continues to be relevant even today, even maybe more so than it had been. And I think that's really interesting. Uh, and anytime a story can continue to find relevancy beyond the time that it's written, I think makes it a better episode. So, you know, to me, I would probably give this 3.75 out of five plasma balls uh, wow. being thrown with uh, sticks because I think this is, it's almost a four, but it's not quite there, but it's still an episode that if I'm rewatching Enterprise, I'm I'm not skipping this episode. So what happened to the 0.25 plasma ball? Did one of them explode because it didn't get into the net quickly enough and a quarter of it was blown off or what? Yeah, what happened to that uh, plasma ball when Archer had thrown it was that it, it just wasn't actually able to uh, make it in the hole because it was a few centimeters off and it shaved off that point. Two five as it you know hit the target. Okay, well that's good. That's better than it hitting a dog that just jumped in front of the net right before it went in. (laughs) (laughs) No, nothing so drastic, Chris. Okay, so nothing so drastic as that because we all know that Gascana is life, and we would not want to uh, lose our will to play the game because this is true. This is true. All right. Yes, well, thankfully that did not happen. I I mean, I don't even know how Archer would have gone through the rest of his day if that had happened. I don't know. Maybe a, they need a ritual or something. Yeah. So, yeah, my final thoughts on it are, well, I've covered most of my thoughts about the story and I would have liked to have seen more of more detail of the situation that was going on between the government and Zabral's people. As far as Rick Berman's comments, For me, it's not undoubtedly one of the best episodes of the season, although I think it's a very good episode. But from a creative standpoint, from a creator's standpoint, I can certainly see why he felt that way, because I think that creatively and producing and shooting this episode and all, they did some bigger things than they had done earlier in the season, going on location, shooting these scenes in the sand, a lot of the visuals in this episode... And the subject matter that they're tackling, it's all a bit grander than a lot of the episodes we've Mm -hmm. seen in season one. So I can certainly see how the crew, the creators, felt very strongly about this episode and really enjoyed producing it and and were really proud of the results, for sure. So I am going to give this one 
seven bowls of mashed potatoes with plenty of mushroom gravy. <laughs> Sounds delicious, Chris. <laughs> All right, everyone. Well, we would love to hear your thoughts on Desert Crossing. There are many ways for you to share those with us. The best way is to go to the Babel Conference. That's our listeners group on Facebook. If you're already a member, you know what to do. But if not, just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right on up. If not, just type the whole name, the Babel Conference. It is a closed group just for listeners. So please answer the questions and agree to the rules of the forum if you're joining so that I can let you in. We'll put a post there for this episode, and you can join in the conversation with fellow listeners and us and share your thoughts on what we talked about today. You can also send us email if you'd like. Just go to our website, trek.fm slash contact, choose to send to a show, and choose Warp 5, and that'll come to Matthew and me by email. And of course, you can find us on Twitter. Our username is trekfm. That's also our username on Instagram and everywhere in social media. And we'd love to hear from you there. Now, Matthew, when you're not back in the decon chamber applying all that aloe to your back to get rid of that sunburn you suffered down in the desert, where can people find you? Well, Chris, when I'm not doing that, of course, uh, you can find me all over social media under the name Matt Rushing 2 Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, Vero, all of those type of places. Of course, uh, here on the network, I'm on the whole other side of the network called the 602 Club, where we are talking about all of the fandoms we love, not just Star Trek, because, well, there's just so much out there to love. You can also find me doing Literary Treks, The Orb, and Chris, now we're doing the Artificial Tango, which yeah. I've been, you know, trying not to pull a hip, you know, uh, so, um, but it's, uh, you know, we've got Literary Treks talk about the books and the comics of Star Trek. The Orb is about Star Trek Deep Space Nine, which we talked about a couple of times here, so everybody should check that out. And then, of course, I mentioned the Artificial Tango, where we're talking about Star Trek Picard Season 2, which, Chris, I am happy to say, so far, I'm really enjoying. Well, I enjoyed the first episode as well, and I'm looking forward today, actually, to being able to watch episode two of season two of Picard to get ready for our discussion. You mentioned the artificial tango where you and I are talking Picard. That is our previous show about Picard was called The Line, which many of our listeners may be familiar with. We have rebranded The Line. We've renamed it The Artificial Tango, and you and I are moving forward as the hosts of that show. And that was really a lot of fun talking about the Stargazer together. So you can find me on there with Matthew. You can also find me elsewhere doing Interphase, The Ready Room from time to time with Larry Nemechek, and all sorts of other things that I'm doing behind the scenes. So I hope you'll check all of those out. And if you'd like to chat with me about Star Trek or Japan or anything that we've talked about, mashed potatoes with gravy, always up for some culinary talk as well. You can find me on Twitter where my username is C Brian Jones, letter C and Brian with a Y. That is my username everywhere in social media, but Twitter is where I'm most active and I'd love to hear from you. Now, if you would like to help us keep this show all the 602 Club things, the Artificial Tango, everything we're doing on the network going, we could really use your help through Patreon. If you'd like to find out how to get involved, just visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash trekfm to find out how. And I'd like to send a huge thank you to everyone who's supporting us right now. We could not keep this going without you. We would not be able to get podcasts out to you. So thank you so much for all of your support. Well, Matthew... 
it's finally time to make your final decision on your Hawaiian shirt because at long last next week, we're going to be spending two days and two nights on Ryza. Chris, let's go. Let's go.